God, we love you because you first loved us. That's the only reason why. We love you because you first loved us. So thank you, God. Thank you for your great love for saving us. Lord, we remember those who are in chains, as if in chains with them, for Andrew Brunson in Turkey. His trial now has been delayed until October for Asiya Bibi in Pakistan and for all the other Christians throughout the world who are in chains, who are suffering, who are facing persecution because of your name. Help them, sustain them, and strengthen them. For our president, give him wisdom, help him. As well as our justices at the Supreme Court, our senators and our representatives, guide them, help them. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines, protect them and save them. So many of them just don't know you, are not following you. And this afternoon, Lord, I ask that you would help us, that you would free us from anxious thoughts, that you would free us from distraction, and that we would hear from you this afternoon. That we would be in awe of you today, that we would be wowed here, Lord. Help us, Jesus. Protect me from error and help me to say exactly what you'd want me to say. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, Today is part 13 of our study through the book of Joshua, part 13 begins right now, and I know it's been a while, a hot minute, since we were in Joshua, at least five or six weeks. So if you may remember and recall that this book is very much a sequel, a part two, a part two to the Exodus, a part two to the Pentateuch, a part two to the Torah, to the first five books, where beyond the battlefields of Joshua, this story is very much wanting us to understand how God is faithful, how God keeps his promises. It is focused specifically on the promise of land for his people and them taking it. And of course, the story starts off and things are a little crazy because it comes right after Deuteronomy when we find out that Moses has died, the only leader the people have ever known, the only leader these not only them, but their children have ever known. And, and Joshua's coming, and he's filling the shoes of Moses. Oh, by the way, the end of Deuteronomy, the last chapter, lets it be known that there has never been a leader like Moses, nor will there ever be a leader like Moses. And then it's, all right, Joshua, you're up. And so he comes up, and right away we see in chapter 1, God encouraging him, where he says, I'm going to be with you just as I was with Moses that you might be strong and courageous to carefully obey all the things that I've instructed you. If you just do that. It sounds like an oversimplification. Just, just be strong and courageous to just obey God. 
I'm never going to leave you, Moses. In the same way I, I never left Moses, I'm not going to leave you, Joshua. I'm not going to forsake you. And so throughout the book of Joshua, we see these ups and down moments where they're obeying and things are going well, and then some people disobey along the way, and then things don't go well. Well, that's where we come up today to chapter 10, but I think in order to really grab on to chapter 10, it's important that we understand how chapter 9 fits into this, because it very much does, and obviously that was the last sermon from our Joshua series, chapter 9, and I'll briefly summarize that, because to, to really drop ourselves in the middle of the story, we need to see the immediate details that fit into this. And of course, in chapter 9, it's the story of the Gibeonite deception. The Gibeonites were ethnically Hivites, and the Gibeonites also seem to have a, a deep understanding deep, probably relative, but they, they have some understanding of Israelite law, what's, what's allowed, what's not allowed. And of course, God has told Israel to come take the land. That's one of the big focuses of the story, them taking possession of the land. This has been a promise that God has made to them that they've waited for centuries. And as a result, they're not allowed to make alliances. They're not allowed to enter into treaties with the people there. They're supposed to kill them. They're wiping them out. And part of the reason, and we looked into this earlier on in Joshua is as punishment because of the people's sins. Like the people living in the land, very, very bad people. Okay, like child sacrifice bad people. And so God's really clear, like you can make alliances, you can make treaties, you just can't make them with anyone in the land. And the Gibeonites, they know this. And of course, they are afraid of what's going to happen. And so they come to Joshua and they give the appearance that they live really, really far away when essentially they've just walked down the street. They give the appearance that they've traveled really, really, really far and they say, listen, if you don't believe us, just look at our food. Look how dried out our bread is. It's all crusty and crumbly and it's, it's very old. When, when we first left, it was, it was fresh and soft and, and look at it now. And if you don't believe us, look at our clothes. Look how tattered they are representing how far we've traveled and how the elements have taken its toll. And Joshua and the people, they, they check it out. It seems legit. And they enter into this alliance with the Gibeonites. And of course, chapter 9 reminds us in verse 14, their big error is not that they were exercising wisdom or discernment. It was that they didn't ask God. They didn't ask God's opinion on the matter. They didn't take counsel from God. They, they wanted to lean on their own understanding. And of course, three days later, they find out the Gibeonites aren't really who they say they were. They're really upset. Okay? They have entered into this relationship, this treaty, this alliance, under false pretenses. They find out three days later, and they want to nix the agreement. They want to tell Joshua, forget this. We want heads to roll. And of course, Joshua. And if you remember Joshua, his name means Yahweh delivers, Yahweh saves. And in an ironic twist of circumstances, Joshua becomes the deliverer and savior for the Gibeonites. As he essentially puts his foot down and says, no, no, we're, we're not just going to slaughter them. That's verse 26. So he did this, this is chapter 9, so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hands of the people of Israel. And so that is where we are at today in chapter 10. 
they've just made this alliance with the Gibeonites under false pretenses. When we see in chapter 10, verse 1, it says this. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, so Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, he hears, he gets the news, right? He hears how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly. He's scared. Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, is scared. He's afraid. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai. And all its men were warriors. So that's, that's our opening. Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, he feels threatened. Israel has come in, and they've made hash out of his neighbors. His neighbors in Jericho, his neighbors in Ai, they've made hash. And now their other neighbors, the Gibeonites, who are pretty legit, are in an alliance with them. Adonai Zedek feels threatened. He feels the need for something to be done. Action must be taken. And from that perspective, I think I can appreciate his mindset. We've got to do something. Israel's coming in. They're crushing our neighbors. They've entered into an alliance with the Gibeonites or other neighbors. And if we don't act now, by the time we might be able to, they'll be too strong and powerful. So, he wants to make a decision. He wants to do something preemptively. And this is what he does, verse 3. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Agalon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. The Gibeonites seem to be pretty resilient, pretty shrewd, and we know based on verse 2, they're also militaristic. Many of their men are warriors, but they're outnumbered five against one. And if you're any type of, I mean, you don't even have to be good at math to realize those, those aren't good odds in a military type setting. It's five against one. And unless they get help, they're going to get slaughtered. So they send for help. Verse six, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, Joshua, Israel, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. We're in trouble, Joshua, and we need your help. Well, that's interesting. Here Joshua and Israel are faced with a, I don't know, Maybe a little bit of a dilemma. 
Do they come and help the Gibeonites? I can imagine some of the people of Israel saying, no way, forget them. Like this, this works out great for us. We can just let the other Amorite kings slaughter them and then boom, we're off the hook. Now, back in chapter 9, the people are upset because they entered into this arrangement, this treaty, this alliance under false pretenses. But other than really their pride, there's really not a whole lot for Israel to have to give up for the alliance. Not a lot. I mean, they're mad. They want them dead. If they could, they would have nixed the deal. Joshua keeps the deal in place. But there's not a whole lot they're losing. Not a lot that they're giving up. Here? Here there's a lot on the line. They've got to risk Israelite resources and men who very well may never come home at this point in the story. It is a, a real test at this point when they get the message from the Gibeonites saying, we are surrounded and cut off. It's five against one. Like, unless you help us, we're not going to make it. A real test of Israel's commitment to whether they're going to be faithful, whether they're going to keep their promise. I imagine some in Israel might have said, no, what? Let them get slaughtered by the other people in Canaan. Let them get slaughtered by the Amorites. That way we're not exactly, you know, breaking the agreement. We're not the ones killing them. This, this works out really well. It doesn't say whether the people that maybe had that mindset. I might have been if I had been there. To be honest, I don't think I, I, I would have been for coming to their aid. No way we're going to risk Israelite resources and men to go and help these people who lied to us, who misled us, to enter into this covenantal relationship. Not happening. I might have still been a little bit angry. Well, Joshua. Joshua does exactly what you'd expect Joshua to do here. You'll see in the next verse, verse 8, and the Lord said, excuse me, verse 7, Verse 7, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and the mighty men of valor. Joshua comes to the aid of the Gibeonites. He's faithful, keeping their word. Despite the trickery by which this treaty had formed, Joshua keeps his word, and they come to their aid. Numbers still aren't great, it's five against two, but they've got a little bit more of a fighting chance now. And you think, I thought, why? Why? Why do they come to their aid? Why do they come to their aid? In, in, a, in a time, in a place in which, and I mentioned this back in chapter 9, we don't really take our words seriously. Now, I, I'm not saying, when, when I say this, I'm not saying, this is not the illustration I'm referring to. Hey, let's get together and go see this movie, or let's go to Chick-fil-A, or let's do this, and we'll meet here, and then, oh, no, I can't actually. I just, I really just don't want to go hang out with you today, or I'm busy, can we reschedule? That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Because, like, in those moments, though, like, we have those horizontal relationships, you know, that, that left and right, but this is not a, simply a left and right relationship. This is a left, right, up and down. This is a horizontal and a vertical relationship. And I think that's really important to understand in regards to this covenantal, 
commitment and, and faithfulness on the part of Israel. And I think the, the two best examples, and I mentioned this six weeks ago, I think, one is within the church when we make a covenant to be the church. And one is when we make a covenant and a promise to our spouse. That's, that's, that's really, I think, where we see that vertical come in line with the horizontal, right? It's not just me and my wife, okay? Or me and these group of people I'm maybe the church with, but there's, there's also like God is involved there, right? Not just a promise I'm making to her or to him, but also to God and before God. And I think in understanding those two, we begin to understand, I think, a little bit better the unique relationship and the aspects of this arrangement that they have with the Gibeonites. And yet, we know all the time how people just, the second it's not working out, they walk away. They walk away. You know, the pastor said something I didn't like, and, and now I'm angry, as my mom told me last week. I, I used the same illustration like seven weeks ago, but it's not actually the same illustration. It's a brand new illustration because she called me and said, yeah, there's another family that just left our church because the pastor said something and they, they were angry and so, they, and so they left. Or You see it in marriages, right? People get, ma- they get, they get mad and things aren't working out and they, they just leave. And It's such a good reminder how covenants are important. And they're not simply important for the good times. You guys, the good times, you can get by on the feelings alone. You can get by on the emotions, right? You can get by on that. I'm pumped up. Small group's awesome. Joe Sermons, they're the best. What happens when they're not? What happens when the sermons are boring, when small group doesn't have the jazz or the feelings that it once did? You say, well, if you understood how my wife, how angry she made me, like how furious, how, how angry like I am, you'd understand why it's okay for me to walk out on her or whatever it may be. These people were angry. They were misled by the Gibeonites. They're angry. People say, oh, well, I'm just, I'm so angry all the time as if that's the justification. If anyone had a justification to nix the agreement, it's these people. Misled under false pretenses. And now, now they've got to risk Israelite lives and resources to come to the aid of these people. And they do. Why? Why? That's what I want to answer. You say, well, Joshua's more noble than me. I'm not Joshua. That's, that's not the issue. In chapter 9, 19 to 20, in chapter 9, 19 to 20, we'll look back at that. Chapter 9, 19 to 20, as it comes up on the screen. Look at this. I want you to think back. Why are they keeping their agreement with the Gibeonites here in chapter 10 when so much is on the line? And this is going to help answer this question. In chapter 9, it says this, verse 19. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. Verse 20. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest Wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. We didn't just make a promise to the Gibeonites. We also, we made a promise to God and before God. 
and lest his wrath come upon us? We're not risking that. And, and you know, when we were back in chapter 9, I made a reference because later on in Israelite history, some of the Gibeonites were killed under King Saul and God sent a plague. God sent famine. Okay, this is not a matter of when we think about like these commitments and why is Israel keeping covenant with them. It's not because it's their duty. Like, it's, it's just our patriotic duty. Like, forget that. I want to live. If I'm in the Israelite camp, that's what I'm saying. Forget that. I want to live all this patriotic garbage. We're coming to their aid because we're the Israelites and, you know, we're just best. That's not it. We made a promise to God. We made a promise before God. And lest God's wrath be upon us. Like, the issue for why they are so intent is because they know who God is. Because there's wisdom in knowing God and fearing God. Or have you not heard Solomon say in chapter 1-7 of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fools despise it. Like there is great wisdom in having an appropriate fear and awe of God and these people do and we would so benefit from also. People say, why do you read your Bible? I would read my Bible because I want to know more of God. I want to know God. They know God and they also fear God. I think if more people knew God and feared God in the reverence and awe that Solomon gives his instructions, I think we'd see a a lot more personal faithfulness in relationships, especially the covenantal relationships. But no, make no mistake, this is not a matter of duty whatsoever. This is because they know who God is. And many people today, that's their problem. They don't know God. They have no fear of God. That's why they're in open rebellion against the king of the universe. And they spit in his face and they give him the middle finger all day long. They don't care! They should. Because they are right now for those who are not following God in high treason against the king. And they will be dealt with. Oh, Joshua. Joshua's great. But God is so much greater in this story. And so they keep covenant. I imagine there might have been some people like Joe, Decreon, if he'd been there, who maybe had a bad attitude and just let the Amorites slaughter their own people. It'll save us the trouble later on. But no, they keep covenant and they stay faithful because this isn't just a horizontal relationship extending to the Gibeonites. This is also a vertical relationship in which God is very much involved. And like they said, lest we bring God's wrath upon us. No, no. We've got to keep covenant with them despite the fact that they tricked us. And so, we see in verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. Do not fear them. You say, why is he telling them not to fear them? Because I imagine some of them very well might have been afraid. It's still five against two. Five Amorite kings against two. The Gibeonites and the Israelites. Why does God say don't fear in verse 8? Because there are... Some of them are probably afraid. Joshua is probably afraid. Joshua's not afraid, doesn't need to hear this.
Do not fear them, Joshua, for I have given them into your hands, and not a man of them shall stand before you. When the battle is over and the dust is settled, no one will stand in opposition to you. God says this because Joshua needs to hear this, and it's not the first time that God has made this sort of statement to Joshua throughout the earlier nine chapters. God has very much said this. These are very much consistent talking points all the way back to chapter 1 when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, Hebrews interprets that for us and he goes on to say, therefore we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? He tells him, don't be afraid, Joshua, in verse 8. Why? Because he's probably afraid. Because he knows that they are at a statistical disadvantage, five against two. And he and the people, some of them might be a little scared right now. And so he reminds them. He's told them before. told them throughout Joshua, back in chapter 1. He's given them this sort of reassurance, but he does it again here in verse 8. So this is what verse 8 does. Verse 8 illustrates to us something that is so central to our Christian walk, and that is remembering. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. I'm thankful, I'm thankful for this reminding on the part of God for Joshua. God's already told him, more or less, the same thing multiple times, and yet he tells him here again. Verse 8 is so central to our Christian walk because our Christian walk, it's so important, so much of it is centered on remembering and being reminded. Why? Because we're prone to forget. Our hearts are prone to wander from God. We're, we're prone to forget, and we're especially prone to forget the promises and commands of God when we are in really difficult situations. When really difficult things happen in our lives, when we're up against insurmountable odds, we're really, really, really prone to get caught up in that, the emotion and the situation and the circumstances and forget the commands and promises of God. Verse 8 is so important Because what is central to our Christian walk with God is remembering and reminding. And not just for the benefit of ourselves, but also for the benefit of others. I mean, this is Hebrews 3 all day long. Exhort one another every day. Because we need it. Because we need to be reminded every day. This this is so central to the Christian, our Christian lives. Because we're being attacked just about every day. By our enemy, the devil. And we need to remind our brothers and sisters in the faith, not just of the promises of God, but of the commands of God. Hey, I see you. Or rather, maybe I haven't seen you for a while. What's going on, brother? What's going on, sister? Hey, I've noticed that maybe your attitude isn't so good here. What's going on? Or I, I can tell you're discouraged. I want to encourage you right now, okay? Like, let me encourage you in the same way that God reminds Joshua here as he does throughout this story. Like, I'm with you. I got your back. Yes, I know you're facing insurmountable odds. That's okay. Because at the end of this battle, there will not be a single Amorite that will stand against you. Yeah, if I'm Joshua, I want to hear this right now on the eve of war. So, Joshua... Verse 9 came upon them suddenly. This word suddenly conveys the idea of a surprise attack. And it makes sense when you read the rest of verse 9. Having marched up all night from Gilgal, they have been in a forced march all night long. If you can imagine how exhausted they must have been. 
Okay, they haven't slept all night. And not only have they not slept, they've been in a force marched all night. And, and now they've arrived, they've caught the enemy off guard, but they've got to fight the enemy. Like, if I'm going to fight the enemy, I'd like a good night's night rest, at least eight, nine, ten hours before, you know, we're slinging lead or cutting people to pieces with a sword. I'd like to be well-rested and well-fed. And, and uh, we know, at least from here, they're not well-rested whatsoever. They, they have the element of surprise. They've approached them suddenly, but, oh, the fatigue and the exhaustion of the Israelites must be so extreme. But that's okay, because at least I imagine Joshua's mind. It's okay. Maybe it's not an ideal circumstance that we had to march all night long, but we don't have to be afraid. We got this, because God's made the promise to us. And then verse 10, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Who? And that word who there can also mean he which I think it probably does. The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who, or he, which would be the Lord, struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. Every verb in this verse is in the singular. Now that's interesting because it being in the singular indicates that he alone is doing this. He alone is throwing them into the panic. He alone is striking them. He alone is chasing them. He alone is striking them once more. Where's Joshua and his men? Are they involved in the process? Well, yeah, Joshua and his men are, are there, slinging lead, cutting people down with the sword. They're, they're involved here. They're, they're killing the bad guys too. But the author here doesn't care about the role of Joshua and his men at this point. The author's chosen to ignore the fact that Joshua is there and instead focus very much on Yahweh's direct involvement, to focus on what is God doing here? And we see God's direct involvement as his warrior king, throwing them into a panic, striking them down, chasing them and continuing to strike them. And they're traveling these Zika, Makeda, this is a distance of over 20 miles. They've been in a forced march all night long. They haven't slept. They're physically, mentally drained. And, and now they're chasing these guys for some 20 miles. How does that happen? Well, I'm not entirely sure apart from God. And that seems to be the point. God is the one doing these things. He is very much on display. The author wants us to see him as the hero of the story. It's not that Joshua was shrewd and wow, those Israelites were so tough. They were in this forced march all night long. Those guys are just like superheroes. No, no, the author's like, yeah, forget about them. Look at God. He's the warrior king. He's the one fighting and battling on behalf of his people. Look at him. Keep your eyes on him. Verse 11, and as they fled, verse 11, and as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones 
than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Once again, we know Israel's involved in killing their enemies, and yet the author, he's like, yeah, they're involved, but look at this. God killed more by throwing hailstones down on the Amorites than all the Israelite forces combined killed with the sword. He wants us to see Yahweh as the one fighting for his people, as their warrior king. He wants Yahweh to get the credit. He wants Yahweh to get the glory. As he should. And then we come to verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord. In the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel, and he, there is some ambiguity as to who the he is, whether that's still Joshua or whether now we've shifted and whether the he is God as the subject And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And so Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Lest you think this is happening after everything that we've read so far, it's not. This is the author employing a use of flashbacks. What we just read, really the apex of the story is occurring simultaneously with verses 6 to 11. We've seen how God's killed more with the hailstones and then it's like just this flashback and the scene goes all the way back to before the battle started and God is in, or Joshua's in this intense prayer with the Lord. That's what verses, that's what's happening in verses 12 to 15. Flashback, Joshua's having this intense prayer with the Lord. This is all before the battle sequence, right? This is happening simultaneously with verses 6 to 11. And he is praying fervently that God would act mightily and powerfully on behalf of the people that he would show up and just, just blow them away. And he does. And he does. So Joshua prays, and then it says, and he said, and I think at best we understand that he is referring to God now. So Joshua prays, and then as a result of Joshua praying, God says, sun stop, moon stop. And the sun just, there it is, climbing in the day. And it just stops. So what is that, what is that like? What does it look like? I don't know. There's never been a day since like this day when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. And so we see this phenomenon of nature occurring. Now, there are many theories as to what exactly happened. I can't go into all of them in detail. I can mention a few of them. One is proposal for what is happening here is that somehow the sun's light is being refracted or bounced and so it's giving the appearance that it's light all day long. But two of the main views 
is the New American Commentary takes this position that this is a figurative language that's being used in the same way that the psalmist tells us that the rivers, in the same way they would say, and this isn't diminished, that God couldn't literally stop the earth rotation but rather that we should understand this in the same way that we see figurative language used in other places of Scripture. And that is the position that the New American Commentary takes. For those of you who have ESV study Bibles, you'll see that the ESV takes and likes out of all of them the, the traditional view that this is literally happening. It is the view favored by men like Augustine, Jerome, Luther, Calvin, and other rabbinical commentators that what is happening here is exactly what it sounds like, that the Earth's rotation is stopping. The Earth rotates around the sun. so The Earth is literally stopping. That God, in response to Joshua's prayer, says, Earth, stop. And the Earth's rotation stops. So what is it like? Once again, I don't know. (laughs) It's never happened again. But it did here, and it should come as no surprise that the one who spoke the universe into existence cannot also stop the Earth's rotation for a time to prolong the day so that Joshua could slaughter all the Amorites. And that is precisely what happens. What is strange, perhaps, is this reference to the book of Jashar. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? If you've grown up in the church, you know we have 66 books in our Bible. You know that the book of Jashar is not in here. So how do we make sense of this? Well, if you were here for the Jude series, I don't know when we were last in Jude. It was a while ago. You know that this is not the first time or the only time in the Bible where an extra biblical literature is being cited. Should we assume that this is Joshua's only source? No. Essentially, what Joshua is saying, like, if you, like, this whole crazy thing happened, the earth's rotation stopped, the sun's hung up in the sky, the, the day was prolonged, and we were able to go slaughter the Amorites while there was still light. And, like, if you don't believe this, just, like, go, go look it up. Like, it's even written, if you go look in the book of Jashar, it's even there. Like, if you don't believe this, just go Google it. Like, it's going to come up. Like, it's going to be the first thing on the search engine. Okay, like, like he's, he's essentially dropping this, this reference to the book of Jashar in that way. If you don't believe me, you go look it up. It's not the only place that you're going to hear about it. The book of Jashar is mentioned again in 2 Samuel 1.18. But he is essentially citing his source, dropping a reference, telling him, go, go Google it for all purposes. But then there's the other aspect of this, and it is in verse 14, where it says that God heeded the voice of a man, and there's never been a day like this before. Maybe you read it and you think, I've prayed before, and and God's listened to me. And aren't there other Bible stories where people prayed and God listened to them? You're right. You'd be right. And so, in asking the question, in what way had the Lord never listened to a man before or since, how do we, how do we understand that? Because in the book of Numbers, in chapter 14, 11 to 21, Moses prays to God, 
God's like, I'm done with Israel. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Moses prays. He dissuades God through intervening on behalf of the people. And later on, he claims, and this is Deuteronomy 9.19 and 10.10, that the Lord listened to him. So he says, the Lord's listened to me. And I think the answer, and the New American Commentary is going to argue this, the answer lies in the precise wording used here. And it's much stronger than how, how we see it with Moses saying, God listened. It, it literally can be, he heeded, as the ESV says, he heeded or literally like he obeyed the voice. He, he heeded or he obeyed the voice. And this specific way this word is being used is only used three times in the Old Testament. The first time it's, it's used in Numbers chapter 21.3. But in that instance, when the Lord heeded or the Lord literally obeyed the plea, it was the plea not of an individual person, but the plea of a nation, Israel. The second instance where this specific word is being used is right here. It's in Joshua 10.14. It is the first time where this word has ever been used in reference to an actual individual. And the next time it's ever used is in 1 Kings 17.22 with Elijah. When he restored the life of a young boy on the basis of Elijah's plea. He heeded. He literally obeyed. And I think the, the really important thing to see is he's under no obligation to do so. To obey or to heed Joshua's request. He's under no obligation whatsoever. And we step back and we think about what's happening, guys. They're in a really difficult situation against insurmountable odds. And Joshua he prays, he prays, and he prays that God would act, and then God does in a way that only God could do in this miraculous way, and tells the earth to stop rotating. The earth is, is, is not rotating. Be wowed. It is an excellent example here of the power of one person's influence and the effects of prayer. The God listened to the voice of one man and fought for Israel as a result. He listens to the voice of one man. Because Joshua prays, God, do the impossible. And he does it. Wow. It's a reminder, I think, to those of us, especially if you're in here and you struggle in making prayer a priority, to see this. To see one person's influence and the effectiveness of prayer. I mean, this is very much James 5, right? The prayer of a righteous person has great power. It works effectively. We, we know this, right? We know this, we don't always do it. We know it, we don't always do it. If it would be all right, I, I'd submit to you one of my favorite Piper quotes. 
Like one of the reasons we don't do it is because it seems like a distraction from productivity. If prayer ever seems to you like a distraction from more productive things, remember God can do more in five seconds, in five seconds of prayer than you can in five hours on your own. It is the most important thing we'll do all day. It was surely the most important thing that Joshua did on the eve of the battle against five Amorite kings. The earth stops rotating, guys. It stops rotating. Verse 15. I'm going to go fast through these and then quickly summarize the next series of verses. So Joshua returned in Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings had been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Verse 20, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. 22, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, verse 24. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chief of the men of war, his commanders who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. 25. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. 26. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this very day verse 28 as for Machida Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword he devoted to destruction every person in it he left none remaining and he did to the king of Machida just as he had done to the king of Jericho their enemies are fleeing before them and they find out the five kings, the five ringleaders are held up in this cave. Joshua says, roll the, uh, roll the, the giant rock against it. But don't, don't pursue them. We've got, we're going to attack their rear guard. Do not let them get back to their cities where they can fall in on their defenses. We're ending this now. We're not letting them make it back to safety. We'll worry about the five kings later. They go, they cut them down to pieces. Then they come back. Pull them out. Line them up. Brings his commanders. He says, I want you guys. His commanders, his generals. Put your, put your foot on, the, on their necks. Highly symbolic here what's happening. He has them place his commander's feet on the back of their necks. And he tells them. You see this picture right here? He's, he's painting a picture for them. You see what's happening right now. You see the commanders and their, and their feet are placed on these king's necks. This is exactly what God is going to do against the rest of our enemies. He is going to do this against the rest of our enemies. They have more battles to fight, especially in the north. 
He's trying to encourage them right here. Just as you see these five kings underneath the feet of your commanders, so God is going to do that to the rest of our enemies. And of course, that's the author's whole point of this story. It is giving God the credit, giving Yahweh the glory, showing how Yahweh is the warrior king who fights his paddles for his people. And yet, in a way, it is a foreshadowing a foreshadowing of the warrior king who would come in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and then rise from the grave three days later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 25 to 27, we see the same imagery used there. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 27. We see the same imagery used where God places Jesus' enemies under his feet. You see this? God's going to do that in the battles to come. And yet when we think about our enemies, and it's not ISIS or global terrorism, or whatever political party you don't like. Our enemy, the devil, our adversary, the tempter, the accuser, the liar. In the same way, we see this foreshadowing, and we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 7, 27, 25 to 27, where that's exactly what Jesus does. He places the enemies under the feet of Christ. And of course, this is what was accomplished on the cross. Defeating sin, defeating death, defeating our great adversary and our enemy. In this ironic twist, the, the cave that had been the shelter for these Amorite kings becomes their grave. The final section in Joshua is a, another summary. Summary statements of things we've already discussed. Make no mistake, chapter 10 of Joshua is very much about one major character, and it's not Joshua. It's the warrior king who fights for his people. The warrior king who fights for his people. That's who he is, right? Why do I read my Bible? I read my Bible so I can know who he is. And who is he? Well, we know he fights for his people. He's their warrior king. But he's also to be respected, honored, and feared. Right? The fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom. Why do they keep this stupid covenant, right? With the Gibeonites. Because it's not just this horizontal agreement that they've made. There's also this vertical one. And they know who he is. And despite the fact that, man, they are so angry, despite the fact that this is not working out, right? It's not working out. It's just not working out anymore. They're keeping covenant because they know who he is, lest his wrath be upon them. And then we see the influence and power of one man's prayer and how God heeded the voice of one man. And he stopped the earth I like to just think about that and just sometimes we think too quickly about things. I like to think about that like he prays and God does what only God can do. And then we see at the end, especially in the imagery, 
we, we see and we know that Christ accomplished what he accomplished on the cross and subduing our enemies in the same way that he subdued Israel's enemy. That's who he is. It's not come and, come and look, look at me, come and look at Joshua. It's come and behold our God. That's who he is. So may we be in awe of him and may our awe of him affect how we live our lives as the people of God. As the band comes, I'll pray. God, we love you. Thank you for this story, this amazing story, which basically just says how ridiculously amazing and awesome you are on the day that the sun stood still. Lord, I pray that we would have a hunger and thirst to know you more. To search out your truths. That we would want to open our Bibles and be wowed. And Lord, that we we would confidently bring our request before you because you're the same God that heeded the voice of one man and had the sun stay suspended in the air. And Lord, we thank you that just as you fought as the warrior king for Israel, that you are our warrior king who has lived the life we could not live. You've died the death we should have died. You've paid the price we could not afford to pay. You have conquered and trampled over our enemies, stripped the accusatory powers of the devil away. So thank you for being God. Amen.